The second scripture lesson this morning is from the book of Galatians. It is Paul talking about his own call, conversion, consciousness rising. Um, This is not the first time I've uh, talked about this uh, with you all, and I haven't preached here that much, so you must think I'm obsessed with this concept, and you would be right. I am. You know, I grew up Southern Baptist, and the whole notion of having the Damascus Road experience is a part of, of, you know, evangelical experience, a part of my life. So this dramatic experience that Paul seems to have had when he moved from Judaism to Christianity, at least that's what we thought was happening in this passage, um, was a big part of my life. Uh, But there's new scholarship on Paul. Um, There's the so-called new perspective on um, Paul, and it even goes further than that. There's the new, new, it's true, perspective on Paul. I'll have somebody in my house that will put articles on my desk about this stuff, and that's how I know about this. It's not that I'm a Paul scholar, I'm not, but I'm fascinated with Paul and his own sense of who he is and what he's been called to be and do, and it's featured in the second part of the sermon, so I invite you to Galatians. Chapter 1, verses 13 through 23. Paul speaking. You have heard, no doubt, of my earlier life in Judaism. I was violently persecuting the church of God and was trying to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my own people of the same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when the one who had set me apart before I was born and called me through God's grace was pleased to reveal God's Son to me so that I might proclaim Him among the Gentiles, I did not confer with any humans, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me, but I went away once into Arabia, and afterwards I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to visit visit, uh, uh, Cephas, but stayed with him for 15 days. But that I did not see any of the other apostles besides James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went to the regions of uh, Syria and Sicilia. And I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard it said, the one who formerly was persecuting us is now proclaiming the faith that he once tried to destroy. This is the word of the Lord. One of the famous stories about Martin Luther King was the night of 1956 when his home was bombed. His family was spared, thankfully. They heard something uh, bounce onto the porch and they went to the back of the house. But when he got there, a mob had already formed. Some had guns with them. 
And this is what Martin Luther King said to them. Quite extraordinary. You cannot solve this problem through violence. We must meet violence with nonviolence. We must love our white brothers no matter what they do to us. We must make them know that we love them. Jesus still cries out the words through the centuries, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, pray for them that despitefully use you. This is what we must live by. Extraordinary words for that time and place, don't you think? His house had just been bombed. Can you imagine? This is somebody that obviously was formed in the faith in a deep and profound way. Formed in the faith maybe beyond, uh, much beyond what I would think to do in that moment, that's for sure. Now, what did he mean by it? We can only presume. Uh, did he mean that he liked what happened? No. Did he like what his uh, 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 white neighbors had done to him? What the white supremacists had done? No. Did he like white supremacy? No. Did he even want to be friends with people? No. Probably not. I wouldn't. I'm presuming here, but I'm guessing this is what he was thinking. He was formed in the faith that love is an action for the benefit of others. And he was formed in his faith that this is who God is. God loves all and created all good. For, so for us to be like God, we love which is to act for the benefit of others, even if we don't like them very much. I'm presuming that this is kind of what Martin Luther King was thinking. And it's profound and deep. Because you really can't wish for somebody's transformation and change unless you love them and believe they're capable of being changed. All these many years later, the questions still remain, don't they? Whether we can change. Whether we're capable of it. On January 6, uh, 2021, I had gone out for my afternoon exercise, and I came back to the house and realized what was happening at the Capitol, the insurrection. And I had three calls from the uh, staff of the uh, Presbyterian Outlook. I was the interim editor for the Outlook at that time, a very short period of time. Um, and they wanted a statement, a prayer, something from the interim editor, and they wanted it by 6 o'clock that night. It was 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And I thought to myself, my God, what am I going to do? Um, it's one thing to do that for your own church, and I... Uh, and, and, and I had done that before for my own church, but to do that for a national audience, I just don't know. I, I wasn't sure I was up to it. First one I thought of was Abraham Lincoln. I don't know why I went there, but Abraham Lincoln was a big part of my former church uh, in Washington, D.C. He attended there, and all things Lincoln were the way 
of, of the church. And the first thing that came to mind was Lincoln's second inaugural, which goes something like this, with malice towards none, with charity to all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive to finish the work that we are in and to bind up the nation's wounds. So I quoted that. And then I went into just what I talked to you about, about loving our enemies. I thought, well, these are the people we, we need to love because these are people, some of them are in, are in our churches. Or people that are sympathetic to it are in our churches. So we've got to love them. And I went through that whole litany that I just went through that I, I suppose that, that King was thinking about when he told that mob to love their, your enemy. To love white people even if they don't love you back. That's what I said. And then I said that doesn't, that doesn't absolve us from naming evil as evil or calling injustice injustice. We must do that, but there are two graces that God gives us. One is justice, one is mercy. So that's what I wrote. I showed it to my wife and she liked it. But Lord, did I get pushback. <laughs> oh, I'd never seen anything like that. I mean, people said, too soon? Love your enemies? Love these people? Somebody said, what you should have done was put the name evil first and then love your enemy second. Which kind of misses the point, doesn't it? <laughs> then I had a, a friend from uh, my church in D.C. who uh, emailed me and said, Roger, I read your article. Boy, you got some pushback, didn't you? <laughs> um, I wrote him back and said, that's helpful. <laughs> it made me wonder about loving the enemy. Is it possible? Made me wonder about that. Uh, made me wonder if I just wanted to be a part-time Christian or be very selective about the enemies that I love, right? Or maybe, um, or maybe just come here and confess my sin that I just can't do this. Then we go to Paul. He had enemies too. And he confesses it. The enemies were the early church. Now what's interesting about the language that Paul uses. He uses the language of persecute and destroy. That language is only used three times in the New Testament, all with respect to Paul's persecuting the early church. And where it is used outside the New Testament is interesting. It is always used of imperial powers destroying enemies. It's always used of Rome destroying enemies in war. That's how it's used. That's the language that Paul picks up about himself. Paul's scholar, Davina Lopez, one of these new, new scholars on Paul, says this about it. What Paul is acknowledging here is that he is imitating the empire. He's mirroring the empire in his, in his, in his attitudes toward the church, his attitude towards others. What Paul may be doing is acknowledging that by accommodating to empire, by, by being assimilated into the empire, 
He's modeling the empire's ways. Kind of like we do. Have you been following uh, all the rhetoric about the NFL? There was an, there was an article in the uh, Washington Post just this last week about whether we should be watching the playoff games, whether we should be watching the NFL at all, because it is so violent and simply reinscribes the violence on the world. And, and there's something to it, you know. There really is something to it. I, I, I confess, I, I do watch these games, and I wonder about that myself. Um, uh, but, 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 and, and, and there's something to the critique of the NFL. But, but, but you know, I think it's misplaced only in this that the NFL is really mirroring us. It's mirroring the world that we live in. So let's not just blame it on the NFL. We need to look into our own souls, don't we? Into our own lives and who we are. Theologian Ted Jennings put it this way. He says, he says the end game of sin is the end game of violence. Our collaboration in violence, our imitation of violence, often exercising it in the name of the so-called strong God. We see it in our relations to those we love, he says, and we see it in our relations to those that we hate. We see it in the elite and those they control, and we see it into those who are excluded. They do it too. It was into this world, says Ted Jennings, that Jesus came, lived, and was crucified to expose. You see, Paul's problem was a crucified Messiah. He couldn't wrap his head around it until he was confronted by the crucified and risen Christ. Do you remember the scene when Christ says to Paul, 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 why are you persecuting me? It's a striking way of putting it. What he's exposing for Paul is the violence not only he was inflicting on the church, but the violence of the world. He was exposing our accommodation to this same violence. And for Paul, it was a grand conversion. It was a call. It was a consciousness raising. It took him three years to wrap his head around it and he, he did for the, and, 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 and he continued to do it for the rest of his, his ministry, I dare say, because, because, because he, he was still in process through all of these letters. You could, still, you could see him working and struggling with this wholly new idea. But in the book of Galatians in particular, he says some extraordinary things. He said, I was crucified with Christ. And I myself no longer live, but Christ lives in me. At the tail end of Galatians, he says, the world is crucified to me and not my, and me to the world. Now, this is different kind of language. This is the kind of language that acknowledges that we all get crucified by accommodating ourselves to a very violent world. We all get crucified, all of it. And then he says the most, the most extraordinary thing that Paul probably ever wrote, and that is that those who are baptized in Jesus Christ have uh, washed away all divisions between male and female, all divisions, racial divisions, and all class divisions. In other words, all the violence of the world has washed away in our baptism. That's what Paul says. 
so that what is left is the politics of love. The politics of love, which is to live for the other, with the other, in the other. Finding one's life in the other. Finding one's identity and fullness in the other. That's what loving the enemy is about. That's what I believe King was, 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 was admonishing and, and, and telling his folk about white supremacists was that we, we are to be in, with, and for others, seeking our own transformation as well as the transformation of others. It's what we're to be about if we're baptized people. If we're baptized people, then the violence of the world has washed away. It has washed away, and we are the new creation. So later in the service, we are going to be uh, naming the victims of, of gun violence it's a way of, of acknowledging also that, uh, that King himself um, uh, died by gun violence. It's a way of acknowledging the world. It's important, it seems to me, that as we hear those names, we don't hear them as folk who are out there, that we hear them as our own mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters, as our own children, in whom we live and, and move and have our being with God beloved of God. It's important also that we remember that those who perpetuated this violence are people that we're called to love. Our brothers and sisters and mothers. We're called to love them all and be about the transformation of the world to be sure it does not absolve us. In fact, it, it hastens the time where we name violence as violence. We name evil as evil. We name sin as sin. We don't want, we don't, we don't reinscribe it on the world, we name it, and we seek to be transformed from it. We seek to live into our baptism as people who are called of God to be transformed from a very percussive world into the nonviolent love that is the only hope for the world, the only hope for our transformation, the only hope the only hope for people who are children of God. May it be so. Let us pray. Oh God, for your grace, which is always sure, we are thankful. Oh God, you have called us to love those who even persecute us. You have called us to love our enemies. You have called us to break down all barriers and to love with an intense love that seeks the transformation not only of ourselves but for the whole world. You have called us not to return violence for violence but to be the kind of people that are your children but to be the kind of people that hope for the day when the lion will lay with the lamb for the day of the new Jerusalem come down out of heaven when all are gathered and your good graces are for all. Help us, O oh God, to be a people of justice and mercy. Amen.